Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. This is The Hash Podcast. Stay informed with the latest on Bitcoin, ETH, the Metaverse, Web3, and more with stories that matter to the crypto world. All on the hash for your ears. You're listening to the Coindesk Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. Happy Thursday. You're watching the hash on Coindesk TV. And if you're listening, you're listening to us on the Coindesk Podcast Network. I'm Jen Sanasi, and I am joined by Will Foxley and Adam B. Levine today. Will, you got our first story. I do. We have new numbers about how the economy is handling everything that's going on, and it's not handling it well. It's down 1.4% for the quarter, which is down a decent amount from last quarter as well. Uh, 6.9% growth rate in the fourth quarter. So a reversal there. Interesting points for why this is happening mostly comes down to inflation, shocks from the Ukrainian crisis, and then also supply chain disruptions that continue to hamper growth developments in the United States. Jobless claims did drop, which is a good indicator. And then consumer spending did rise over the quarter. So economists are saying, hey, we're probably in a good spot. It was just a slight reversal. But to all of us who are in Bitcoin, I think the inflation numbers speak for itself. That is more than likely the reason why a lot of these things are falling. People don't want to spend their money because everything's getting really, really pricey out there. And then you see things called like demand destruction, where people stop spending money, prices for things start falling. Used cars is a really good example of that. Used cars went really, really high over the last two years or so, the prices for used cars, that is. And then recently, we've seen an about face on that, where the price for used cars has been tricking down because the price has gone so high, people are just not willing to spend that much money anymore. So we're seeing something called demand destruction. Adam, I want to throw this one over to you. This is a pretty bearish way to start the morning off, but it is really important. Well, I'm going to actually make things a little bit worse because for as bad as it actually looks in official numbers, it's worth noting that the official numbers are usually numbers that are cherry-picked in order to present the best sort of possible uh, face forward because these numbers really are how we measure the effectiveness of our government and how we measure really how well are the policies that we're embarked on working. This is actually not a partisan thing either. It's bipartisan. We've got a graphic here. This comes to us from uh, shadowstats.com, which is one of my favorite alternative economic sources. Longtime economist John Williams runs this. What we're looking at here is a different way to look at GDP that uh, would be accurate if we were still measuring inflation in the way that we had been doing 
uh, in the 1980s and then the 1990s. That blue line there, that is if we had not changed the methodology for how we calculate inflation in the early 80s, then we would actually see that GDP has been negative a number of times and has been consistently negative um, since the, uh, the pandemic started. So the government typically uh, updates, uh, they say, the way that they calculate inflation. But again, those updates, which happened in the 80s and the 90s, had the effect of lowering measured inflation on a consistent basis. And gross domestic product is productivity gains minus inflation, which means that if you underestimate inflation, then you underestimate GDP. So <laughs> like I said, unfortunately, it's even worse than the official numbers say, again, once you start to look at it in this fashion. Yeah, I zeroed in on the story of George Lewis in the article. So he owns an inn. He says he's seeing a surge in demand, which is obviously a sharp turn from what was happening during the pandemic. And now he's concerned about next year because his business costs keep going up uh, and consumers are spending just as they were before the pandemic. So he's unsure about interest rates next year. He's unsure about what his customers will be able to spend. And so maybe you guys can explain this to me like I'm five. How are people still spending as much money as they were before with interest rates going up and the inflation rates increasing the way we're seeing it? It just seems like it shouldn't be happening this way. I think it depends on like how you're going to spend because like inflation numbers only hit certain people. So we saw in the bottom line rate for the Fed go up a few bips in December. They start talking about that. The markets are pricing it in. And so that's when you saw like mortgage rates start to go up a little bit. And I haven't looked at those, but I've just heard from Twitter and around, you know, people talking about it, that mortgage rates are going up. But from like consumer spending on inflation, I think like there's two facets to that, right? Some people are not spending as much because they can't, they're getting priced out of buying things. And so they're moving to substitutes. They're moving to like generic things instead of buying the name brand. But also when you're looking at like the bottom line number, since inflation is going up, like the volume of the dollars being spent is a greater. So you're almost like covering your own tracks there. You're like your aggregate number of consumption spent is still really high. It's just that the price of everything went up, even though you're probably getting less for what you what you purchased. Yeah, inflation winds up being lumpy is what it comes down to, specifically on housing. The mortgage interest rates that Will was mentioning, those are actually up 40 percent. Uh, over the last 12 months, up more than two percentage points in absolute terms, which is a huge, huge gain. And again, reflects that the Fed had been keeping them artificially low as a way to try to stimulate the economy. The upside about stimulating the economy is that if you're doing it right, then for every dollar that you, you know, are effectively investing into that stimulus, which is really taxpayer money, um, you are hoping to get more than a dollar worth of economic gains out of it. In practice, that hasn't happened for a very long time because there's so much uh, stimulus that happens that you get a diminishing returns on each one of those dollars. So that's one of the challenges. The other thing is that inflation expectations are sticky, which means that once people are used to living in a world where the price of something is regularly expected to go up by a decent margin, then people start pulling forward consumption. And so today that means that we are seeing people buying with the expectation that the prices will be higher later, which then can then itself exacerbate uh, supply chain issues, which means that there's more demand today because people aren't buying because they need it. They're buying because they think the price will go up, which then can actually cause a vicious cycle. And so that's really the danger that the Fed and the U.S. government is looking at right now is as those inflation expectations become entrenched, people's behavior changes. And it takes a long time for that behavior to shift back. So that's I think there are meaningful concerns here. The fact that headline uh, GDP numbers are showing a negative print. Again, 
with that, that what I would consider manipulation uh, that I uh, you know, talked about a little bit earlier, that's real dangerous. And it's a dangerous situation because as the government obviously becomes sort of not very good at the things that they do, the pushback against it uh, in terms of policies, in terms of trust institutions, all of those things suffer dramatically. And that's not a good trend for anybody. We'll talk about DeFi. So I think the story is actually sort of revealing the ignorance of bankers still. But Morgan Stanley says there's over 100 new crypto assets were created in the past week, mainly on DeFi exchanges. They're noting this as a measurement for why the crypto markets are not slowing down, or at least that's how I'm interpreting this headline. Despite a fall in crypto prices, the creation of digital assets is still high. Let's just take a, a step back and, and like pair this a little there's no real correlation at all between the creation of a digital asset and the prices of digital assets. In fact, creating more of them necessarily dilutes the other assets that are out there right now. So it's funny to see headlines like this that are, that are talking about like, oh, there's more Bitcoin alternatives than ever. So the price of Bitcoin and the price of all these other assets is, are, are staying high and they will continue to stay high. It's like, no, like anyone with a GitHub login can go and copy and paste one of these and then launch it on chain. It's not difficult and it's not a rationale for saying like if the crypto market's going to stay high or not. So like stay cocky bankers. I understand that you're trying to get into the industry and we all enjoy it, but like maybe learn a little bit before you just like writing some of this stuff up. Yeah. So I agree with your take, but I think that there's a little bit more nuance to it. One of the things that's interesting about cryptocurrency is that anybody can do this. I could, uh, you know, write out notes to, you know, to some <laughs> something on pieces of paper and then hand those out. That doesn't make them valuable, right? What makes something valuable is the underlying utility or what it represents a claim on or something like that. And so when you're looking at these asset creations, that actually isn't meaningful. The question is, who's trading them? Who's buying and holding these? How much volume does something actually has? And what is really the trajectory of that project? So, I mean, this has been true for as long as cryptocurrencies have been around. When Bitcoin came out, by nature of the fact that it was open source, you pretty much immediately had an industry of what at the time were called altcoins, uh, where people would effectively, as Will said, take Bitcoin's code, change a couple of things about it. That's where Dogecoin came from. That's where Litecoin came from. And many of the hundreds of projects that are out there that frankly aren't really around or that we don't care about anymore because they didn't really offer anything meaningful. So uh, the other factor that's different now versus the early days is that there's so much money. And that money is not necessarily looking for value. It's looking for what's going to be the next trendy thing, right? Effectively, you have people who are buying assets based not on underlying fundamentals, but based on, do I think that I will be able to sell this to somebody else for more money? And as that game has gotten standardized, you have people on both sides, people who are professional traders who are looking to do exactly that. And that's really all they care about. And you've got many, many of these projects who look at the market and they say, wow, there's a huge opportunity for us to either fund a project that we really want to do or maybe just rake in a bunch of money and then walk off with it. So those two dynamics mean that 100 assets being created in the last week, that's, that's a small number as far as I'm concerned. I wouldn't be surprised if you were looking at thousands of assets being created on a weekly basis. It's just that we don't hear about any of them because none of them matter. I'm going to quickly give my take and then I'll pass it off to you, Will, because I am a little delayed. I just don't want to cut anyone off. So I thought this was interesting because Last month, the bank issued a report that said they expect DeFi growth to slow down because of regulation and over-collateralization. And Adam, I know that you were just saying that 100 isn't a lot. 
But I just feel like it is when we're talking about like user adoption and the mainstream. And if we want people to come to DeFi and use these products, we're talking about 100 new products every day. I can see how that is confusing for people who just get started, right? If we're trying to avoid hacks and we're trying to mitigate risk, 100 new products is, I feel like it's convoluting the industry. And I don't know if anyone has said that, but Will, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I have a lot of thoughts. I think, first of all, this number is probably really inaccurate. Only 100 created in a week seems <laughs> completely wrong. Like, There's Telegram channels you can subscribe to that scrape the chain and they will find like how many new tokens launched on Uniswap in one week because you can actually uh, launch a token directly from Uniswap and Uniswap has like well over 30,000 trading pairs at this point. And you can just spin off really easily. And then there's a million other chains at this point that are also not just like for Uniswap. There's just thousands of tokens out there. And yes, it does make it more confusing for the average person. But the average person isn't getting to these low cap coins. Like no one's ever going to touch most of these coins. There's only like a little bit of the cream that rises to the top here. In general, I'd say like, again, this metric has nothing to do with reality. It doesn't impact price <laughs> at all. It doesn't change anything. It's just like a banker went into this. They have no idea what they're talking about and just pulled it out. And they have a report that they could send to their boss and it looks kind of good, but it has nothing to do with reality. Adam, I'll give it to you for last thoughts. Yeah. Just going back to kind of historical context for a second here. You know, I remember in the early days of, uh, of the ability to create tokens without having to launch your own blockchain with, you know, miners, which used to be a thing before in the year 2013, when a new token would launch, it would actually need its own blockchain. Today, most tokens launch on top of uh, Ethereum. And that's because that makes it so that they don't have to solve a bunch of these problems. So now the, the relevant part is that even back in 2014, when these first protocols launched, I remember there were weeks when I personally registered more than 200 different assets on the counterparty protocol and eventually on other protocols as well. And so again, like you look at the ease of doing something like this and you look at the numbers and it's just not a meaningful metric. But the other part about it that's interesting is that it's not a meaningful metric because the neutrality of the thing, the ability for anyone to do it is both empowering, but it also means that, as you said, Will, it, you need to be doing something that's worth noticing because just doing something, right? If you get a stock listed on the New York Stock Exchange or whatever, that means that it's meaningful. There are you know, gates and there are you know, targets that need to be hit before the exchange will choose to list you. That is just not true in the world of tokens. Anyone can create any token for any reason at basically no cost without asking permission from anybody. And because of that, we get it all. <laughs> so turning to our final story for the day, big bank Goldman Sachs says that they're taking a serious look at tokenizing real world assets, specifically financial instruments. Now, although NFTs are currently viewed as pieces of art and in-game items, they are in fact just the best way to represent ownership of really anything in a way that's natively compatible with the internet. And because they're natively compatible, that means that they avoid all sorts of complexities built into the modern financial system, which I like to call the legacy financial system, given we have a better one, like third-party custodians and counterparty risk. So this is a more modest story that I think could have big real-world implications. I think that like this story compared to the last one makes more sense, right? Like NFTs as a vehicle for getting things done makes a little bit more sense because there's like... The fungibility aspect is obviously one thing. It's tied to a chain and then it's tied to a digital asset as well. So the other story we're talking about, like it's just tokens that spin up. Nobody knows about them. But here we are bringing like the meat space and the tech space together in one tight little package. And it's 
It's pretty groovy, like in a larger sense, like they, that you can do something like this compared to past issuances where like people were trying to figure this stuff out for years and it was never working. People are trying to attach real world items to Bitcoin. People have tried to make MakerDAO contracts that were using real world assets and it never has really been successful. But like the popularity of NFTs over the last two years has really brought this into perspective. And big banks using NFTs as a vehicle makes sense if you're willing to take some trade-offs. And I think like the trade-offs is the larger thing that most people are just like not willing or comfortable to deal with. So it's like the Bitcoin maximalists out there who are like, we want to have a native asset on chain. We want to have this native asset be sovereign. It can interact only with itself and, and just exist. NFTs and a lot of Ethereum tokens and tokens in general take a different perspective. They're like, we want some of the values of a blockchain. We want some of the censorship resistance, but we're okay with someone technically owning something at the end of the day in the meat space and then having a token value appropriated for it on chain. Uh, and so that's where things start to get really interesting. And I think like my perspective has definitely changed on this over the last few years where I used to be very bearish on these things, but I do think that once you start noticing how frictionless uh, using crypto apps are compared to like your traditional bank account, then you can notice like, oh, this actually might be like a pretty good thing. Adam, I'll kick it over to you though for your thoughts. Yeah. So one of the fascinating things about this story to me is that really what it has the potential to do is it has the potential to open up secondary trading of financial assets without needing to have traditional exchanges and without needing to have the brokerage involved uh, or you know the company, the big bank, whoever it is that's on the other side of the trade. Effectively, what happens once you turn something into a token, let's say that you have you know, a, a contract that is effectively a bet that the price of Bitcoin will go up and you pay a certain amount of money to open that bet. Uh, you have leverage there that effectively put, you know, basically this thing has a value and it's unique in that it has the particular bet that you are making, right? Long and the short of it is that by attaching these bets to NFTs, you make it possible for people to trade on decentralized exchanges, on potentially centralized exchanges, and have the ability to buy someone else's bet, taking the other side of that. And as far as the bank or the issuer of the, uh, on the other side of the bet, they don't really care. Uh, to them, it's in completely encapsulated within this sort of vehicle, and NFTs wind up being quite useful in that way. Again, in the future, we're going to see this for almost anything. Mortgages will be represented as NFTs. When you go to, to actually you know, purchase a house or to get a mortgage or something like that, there's this gigantic stack of papers that you have to sign because it's a process where effectively both sides have to kind of release something, but there's no real transfer mechanism. Well, when you represent something with an NFT, whoever owns the NFT owns the thing. And that really simplifies a lot of these real world problems. So I think that this is definitely something that we'll be seeing uh, you know, come up in uh, prominence. And it's a little bit early. I wasn't expecting to see it this early. But other than that, this is kind of right on track for me. It's definitely a space to be paying attention to. But we'll call that a wrap for the hash today. We started with three. Now we're just two. So we lost one along the way, but still a good conversation nonetheless. If you're watching this, thanks for tuning in. Also check out a new podcast version of the hash for your ears. Pretty good. It's part of the Crypto Podcast Network. It's a lot of great podcasts from Coindesk there, so check them out. But from Adam and I, thanks for listening today. We'll catch you guys later. Have a good one. See you next time. You've been listening to The Hash on the Coindesk Podcast Network. 
We would like to hear from you. So if you have any questions or comments, please reach out to us at podcasts at coindesk.com, subject line, the hash, or leave us a review on your favorite podcast player. Thanks for listening. 